From New York, this is Democracy Now! We're pleased that the Supreme Court uh, rejected the extreme legal theory uh, presented in this case, which would have interfered with state governments, uh, which would have opened the door for politicians to undermine the will of the people. The Supreme Court begins its final week of the term by dismissing the independent state legislature theory that state legislatures can write election rules and draw congressional maps not subject to review by state courts. We'll speak with Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center for Justice, author of The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Then poverty is the fourth leading cause of death in the United States. Poverty kills two and a half times more than drug overdoses. Cumulative poverty lingers year after year, and cumulative poverty is associated with 60% more death than current poverty, putting only heart disease and cancer and smoking-related deaths above the number of people that are killed by poverty. We'll speak with Bishop William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign, then to Honduras, where residents are fighting private charter cities established by U.S. corporations with autonomy from the national government. My name is Vanessa Cardenas. I'm from the community of Crawfish Rock, the Bay Island of Red Town, Honduras. And my fight is against the charter city, and especially to say that Prospera is you know, because of the law that it has and also the negative impact that they have had on our community, their lack of transparency. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.S. Supreme Court's rejected a legal theory that would have radically increased the power of state legislatures to reshape how federal elections are conducted and would have made it easier to draw up gerrymandered congressional maps. Writing for the majority in Tuesday's 6-3 to ruling, Chief Justice John Roberts rejected the so-called independent state legislature theory promoted by North Carolina Republican lawmakers. The decision comes as the Supreme Court is poised to deliver major rulings on affirmative action and the fate of President Biden's student debt relief. We'll have more on this week's blockbuster cases at the Supreme Court after headlines. In climate news, smoke from unprecedented Canadian wildfires darkened skies over much of the Midwestern United States Tuesday, triggering very unhealthy air quality warnings in Chicago, Detroit and Milwaukee. Forecasters predict winds will push the smoke further east today, bringing a return of hazardous air to New York and parts of the Northeast. This week, the plume from worsening fires in Quebec and Ontario across the North Atlantic, bringing hazy skies to Spain and Portugal. Meanwhile, there are warnings and advisories for excessive heat in effect again today in several southwestern and southern states. The Electric Reliability Council of Texas reports record power consumption amidst a three-week-old heat wave that sent temperatures as high as 120 degrees Fahrenheit, or 49 degrees Celsius. The Texas Tribune reports at least nine prisoners, including two men 
women in their 30s have died of heart attacks or unknown causes this month in prisons lacking air conditioning. Science communicator Susan Joy Hassel says a collapse of Texas's overstrained electrical grid right now would lead to widespread deaths. The Texas grid appears to be very vulnerable to a heat event like this because it doesn't have the capacity to bring in power from other places. And this heat dome is really expanding. You know, they say 50 million people are already exposed to dangerous heat by this heat dome. A Russian missile attack on the eastern Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk has killed at least nine civilians, including three children. Tuesday evening's attack on a crowded pizzeria just after 8 p.m. local time left dozens more injured. This is Valentina, a 64-year-old who witnessed the aftermath of the assault. I ran here after the explosion. I run a cafe nearby. Everything has been blown up here. There is nothing. No windows, no doors. That's what I see. Destruction everywhere. It is fear, horror in the 21st century. I don't even know how to describe it. My son was killed in the war. And now this. Belarus's leader says he convinced the head of Russia's Wagner Group to call off a mutiny last weekend that saw heavily armed mercenaries advance to within 120 miles of Moscow. President Alexander Lukashenko said during a weekend phone call, Russian President Vladimir Putin promised to wipe out Wagner's forces and was considering killing Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin. Lukashenko said he later relayed Putin's comments to Prigozhin in a separate call. He says, but we want justice. They want to strangle us. We will march in Moscow. And I say, halfway there, they will squash you like a bug. U.S. intelligence officials have told New York Times senior Russian General Sergei Sorovkin had advanced knowledge of Prigozhin's plans to rebel against Russia's military leadership. The Times reports the officials are trying to learn if the general helped plan Prigozhin's mutiny. On Tuesday, Russia's embattled defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, whom Prigozhin has assailed for mismanaging Russia's war in Ukraine, appeared publicly as President Putin led a Moscow ceremony honoring Russian soldiers and police for their actions during the mutiny. The Biden administration's imposed new sanctions on companies accused of profiting from the activities of the Wagner Group in Africa. The Treasury Department says the sanctions will punish four companies based in Russia, the United Arab Emirates and the Central African Republic that extract gold, diamonds and other minerals to help fund the mercenary force. The sanctions were announced after Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said Monday, Wagner mercenaries will not be withdrawn from Africa following last week. Several hundred Russian servicemen are working in the Central African Republic as instructors. This work will, of course, be continued. In Sierra Leone, President Julius Madabayo has won re-election following a tense presidential contest over the weekend that was marred by police violence. He narrowly escaped a runoff election, securing over 55 percent of the vote needed to declare victory. His main opponent, Samura Kamara, of the All People's Congress, has rejected official results. He said on social media, quote, it's a sad day for our beloved country. It's a frontal attack on our fledgling democracy. 
Thousands of nurses in Texas and Kansas walked off the job Tuesday for a one-day strike to demand better workplace safety. Nurses have denounced chronic understaffing at three Ascension hospitals in Wichita and Austin. It was the largest nurses' strike in Texas and Kansas history. This is Natasha Gosek, a neonatal intensive care unit nurse who's worked at Ascension Seton Medical Center in Austin for 14 years. I know a lot of co-workers and a lot of new nurses, their first thing to do when they get in their car after a 14-hour shift is they just cry and release all of the previous 14 hours so that they can compose themselves to go home to their families and not carry that with them as best as they can. Because they know that they've been called to this profession. They've been driven to this profession to take care of babies to hear families, um, and they're not able to do that. Here in New York, serious misconduct and neglect by guards at a city federal jail are what led to serial pedophile Jeffrey Epstein's death by suicide in 2019. That's according to a years-long investigation by the Justice Department, which released a 120-page report Tuesday accusing officials at the now-shuttered MCC, Metropolitan Correctional Center, of creating an environment that allowed Epstein the opportunity to hang himself. DOJ Inspector General General Michael Horowitz detailed the findings Tuesday. Had Epstein's cell been searched as required, it would have revealed that Epstein had excess prison blankets, linens, and clothing in his cell. MCC New York staff also failed to ensure that the institution's security camera system was fully functional, resulting in limited recorded video evidence. While we determined MCC New York staff engaged in significant misconduct, we didn't uncover evidence contradicting the FBI's determination that there was no criminality in connection with how Epstein died. At the time of his death, Jeffrey Epstein was awaiting trial for sex trafficking and other charges. In more news from New York, Gothamist reports the city's Department of Correction is planning to purchase over $90,000 worth of high-powered submachine guns for a specially trained emergency security unit working at the troubled Rikers Island jail complex. This comes after New York's Department of Correction earlier this month cut some $17 million in jobs in job training and social programs for prisoners. New York voters headed to the polls Tuesday for an off-year primary election to choose several city council seats and two district attorney races. Longtime progressive Charles Barron failed to keep his New York City council seat, losing to Chris Banks, who was backed by House Democratic Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. In the most closely watched race, Yusuf Salam, one of the exonerated Central Park Five, was declared the winner in a contested bid for a city council seat in Harlem. Salam defeated Democratic Assemblywoman in Inez Dickens, who had received the endorsement of New York Mayor Eric Adams by a landslide. Salam was one of five black and Latinx teenagers wrongfully convicted of the 1989 beating and rape of a white woman. He spent seven years in jail. Yusuf Salam has said he will overhaul New York City's criminal legal system, end mass incarceration, and help bring about police reform. To see our 2016 interview with Yusuf Salam, go to democracynow.org. And in Manhattan, 
Manhattan. Public housing tenants rallied on Tuesday to demand the city halt its controversial $1.5 billion plan to demolish two public housing complexes and replace them with new high-rise apartments. Officials say the plan to tear down the Fulton and Chelsea Elliott houses is more cost-effective than repairing the apartments. But tenants argue the demolition will drive further privatization, gentrification and displacement. Some tenants opposed to the demolition reported they were turned away by city authorities Tuesday as they tried to attend a resident engagement meeting. This is George Weaver, a Fulton tenant since 1993. We've got a mental crisis. We've got a homeless crisis. Look at it. It's going to get worse if we tear down public housing. We're going to have people sleeping in the streets all over. And it's not just happening in New York. It's happening all across America. You see what happened in Chicago in the last mayor's race. That was a proven point. Eric Adams has to listen to us. In the halls of government, it says, of the people, by the people, for the people. It doesn't say, of the government, of the, of the developer, by the developer, and for the developer. Democracy Now! Sanji Lopez, thank you for that report. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, this week marks the end of the Supreme Court's current term. Tuesday, voting rights advocates welcomed a decision in a major election law case that preserved checks and balances in elections. In a 6-3 to three decision, the justices dismissed the so-called independent state legislature theory, that state legislatures have nearly unlimited power to make rules for federal elections and draw partisan congressional maps that are not subject to review by state courts. This is White House spokesperson Olivia Dalton responding to the decision in Moore v. Harper. We're pleased that the Supreme Court uh, rejected the extreme legal theory uh, presented in this case, which would have interfered with state governments, uh, which would have opened the door for politicians to undermine the will of the people. This comes as the Supreme Court is set to issue major decisions Thursday and Friday, including on student debt and affirmative action. For more, we're joined by Michael Waldman, president and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice. His new book on how Supreme Court's conservative majority has ushered in a radical new era is titled The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. His piece on Tuesday's ruling is headlined The Independent State Legislature Theory is dead. Uh, Michael, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Why don't you start off by explaining who Moore and who Harper are and why this decision, which for many may sound very bureaucratic, is so fundamental and is such a surprise in the way the Supreme Court, the conservative Supreme Court, ruled? I, it was fundamental. I don't know that it was such a surprise because this was such a crackpot idea that it would have been an utter revolution in our democracy had they done anything other than what they did. The facts of the case make that pretty clear. Uh, North Carolina is an evenly divided state, Democrat and Republican. They have a Democratic governor and Republican legislature. Um, the legislature drew a congressional map that was very, very gerrymandered for the Republicans. It was 11 Republican seats and I think three or four Democratic seats. The state Supreme Court there said that's unconstitutional under our state constitution. And the legislature said, you have no role here. We get to do whatever we want. They claimed, uh, and some of the MAGA lawyers have begun to claim that the Constitution gives state legislatures the power to 
set election rules for federal elections with no checks and balances from state courts or constitutions or governors or the voters. Um, and that nobody noticed it until now. And and it's a it's a crackpot idea and has never been found by another court. So it's great that the court rejected it. They should never have taken the case. They were pretty strong in the language they used. But it, by this point, it was not such a surprise. I will say the Voting Rights Act case a couple of weeks ago was more of a surprise to those of us watching the court. And Michael, what does this mean now in terms of the uh, of the redistricting of North Carolina? What happens now in that state in particular? <laughs> well, North Carolina, interestingly, will be affected by this less than many other places. That's because that during the most recent election, uh, the voters chose conservative justices for the state Supreme Court. So even though the Supreme Court there blocked the gerrymander last year, the new Supreme Court majority has said, oh, it's just fine. So this doesn't actually affect what's going on in North Carolina. However, it will continue to empower state courts around the country to uh, to block gerrymanders, to police the legislatures, and to keep legislators from trying to entrench themselves or advance their party with these egregious maps. So it's pretty important in that way. It also makes clear that as we look toward 2024 and the potential um, problems that we would have in that election, that again, state courts can play their appropriate role. There's, you know, there's some language in there that gives people a little bit of pause to make sure that it doesn't turn into the next problem. But uh, it basically says the way it's been done for the last 200 years is how it should be still done. So talk about your reservation, that this isn't quite as much of a victory as some are hailing it. Uh, the whole issue of um, the court saying that state courts themselves can't go beyond their bounds, but giving a lot of power to the federal courts, Michael Waldman. Yeah, we think this is an extraordinary victory. Um, that is the worry that some observers have. Um, and of course, it's worth watching out for. I would say in some respects that this was not new, that the federal courts already were going to police the state courts if they really went off the rails. Um, the, the standards here are a little fuzzy, uh, and there's always a risk that it could become uh, uh, um, grounds for federal judges to try to interfere um, in, in what's going on in the states. Uh, perhaps I'm a bit cynical, but I think they already had that ability anyway. <laughs> so I don't think it changes that much. But some some who've looked at it worry that that's the that's the next problem um, that uh, that the this and I have to refer to the independent state legislature theory. I have to remember to refer to it. First of all, calling it a theory is very generous. It's a crackpot idea. It was never actually a theory, but uh, it's in the past tense. Um, it's been rejected very roundly. But, of course, we want to make sure that these Federalist Society right-wing federal judges uh, don't overstep their bounds in, poli in policing what state courts do when they're dealing with federal elections. And, and, Michael, I wanted to ask you about one of the upcoming decisions that millions of Americans, especially those with student debt, are, are mm -hmm. eyeing now that will occur in the next few days. 
what's your sense of uh, how the court will act? Also, the there are progressive activists who argue that if the Supreme Court strikes down Biden's uh, debt relief plan, that he still has the authority to forgive student loans under the Higher Education Act. What's the potential of him doing that? Uh, if And also uh, the uh, advisability of that as an alternate path to debt forgiveness. So you're, you're exactly right that it, uh, there are a few more days left in the Supreme Court term, and they still have quite a few big decisions to announce. One of them is this student debt uh, relief plan. This is something that even the Biden administration worried was on shaky constitutional ground when they did it uh, for something like this to be done by him through executive action. The interesting question here is, will the court strike it down or will they say, well, we might not like this, but the people who are bringing this case lack what's called standing, meaning they can't really show they were injured that by somebody else getting their student debt um, relieved in that way. And there was a ruling the other day uh, where they blocked or they rejected Texas's effort to to force the Biden administration to change its immigration policy. They said Texas lacked standing. And it may be that this is an area where they're saying to red states or right wing activists, you know, we're a pretty conservative court. We're a pretty extreme court. But you can't just take a a uh, an op ed and send it to us and ask us to implement it. Uh, you need to follow some more of the rules. I think it's also the case looking forward that it's been a conservative crusade to limit standing in the federal courts because they don't want environmentalists and activists and community groups to be suing conservative administrations over things like the environment and other other matters. Um, you know, whether and how there might be other steps on student debt that the administration could take partly will, I guess, depend on what kind of ruling they get. The Biden administration has been reluctant to do this. Um, uh, they, they, have, they have generally not pushed the executive power uh, beyond the lines of its extent, and I don't know whether they would here or not. But they do have, uh, they do have ways to do different things using different parts of the law that they haven't always used. And Michael Waldman, affirmative action. Can you talk about what the court is deciding and how significant it is if they rule against affirmative action? Do colleges, universities have to abide by what they say? Yeah, this, you know, in all likelihood will be the blockbuster case of the term, and they're saving it for the last episode of the season, um, as they sometimes do, or they're, or they're like finishing their term papers and uh, saving their work for the last minute. Um, the Supreme Court uh, is hearing challenges to affirmative action to the use of race as a factor for university admissions in both public and private universities, two different cases, one from Harvard, one from the University of North Carolina. Um, this is, of course, a really big deal. And most observers do expect them to rule that you cannot use race uh, as a factor in admissions um, uh, in the way that has been done for years now in higher education. It would be hugely consequential at a time of massive demographic change and massive pressure on, on our university systems. Um, the universities around the country, as I understand it, have already anticipated a lot of these rulings and, and are, are looking to make changes 
uh, you know, one of the questions is, are there other ways to promote diversity, uh, including on class or location, that will not just replicate the kind of um, old school white uh, traditional student bodies of the past, uh, but will enable universities to continue to seek a diverse student body. You know, there was a great question that Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson asked during the oral argument in this case um, that shows how disruptive this could be. She said, well, there's two essays applying for college. One is from somebody who says, I want to go to UNC because my grandfather went there and it'll mean a lot to me to go there for that reason. The other person writes and says, I want to go to UNC because my grandfather could not go there because because of his race. And therefore, it would mean a lot to me to go there. Are they really saying that you cannot say, say that or take that into account in the second essay, but you can, in effect, have, have uh, take white race into account, as in the first essay? You can see how disruptive this would be. Um, uh, and it'll affect a lot of things going forward. Uh, Michael, I want to turn a little uh, to your book, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Uh, you uh, raise several important points there. One is the unique role of the Supreme Court in our country versus uh, high courts in other countries. And you also talk about why uh, 2022 was such a uh, a seminal or pivotal moment in terms of how the Supreme Court acts. Uh, could you uh, elaborate on both of those? Yeah, well, you're exactly right. Uh, we take for granted that we have this court that is nine unelected people serving for lifetime terms uh, that has so much power that we sit around every June wondering what rulings are they going to make and and uh, what country do we live in as a result. Um, and it has this power only because we the people give it this power. It, it, it has developed over time. Uh, and uh, it really depends on the public's faith in the court as at least something like above politics or, or at least not a purely political, purely ideological, purely power-driven actor. Um, in 2022, it was the first full term of the supermajority of six very conservative justices, uh, who you and your viewers are, of course, familiar with how they got installed. Um, six very conservative justices, their first term, and they moved the court and therefore the country hard to the right. In three days last June, first they, uh, they did a decision called Bruin which was by far the most sweeping Second Amendment ruling in the country's history. It basically said you cannot, when considering the constitutionality of, of a gun rule, you cannot take public safety today into account. You can only look at, quote, history and tradition, meaning what were the rules back then in the, in the founding era, say. The next day was Dobbs, which, of course, was the first time the Supreme Court revoked a constitutional fundamental right recognized uh, by the courts for half a century by overturning Roe v. Wade and the right to reproductive choice, and did it in a way that puts many, many other privacy rights at risk. And then the third big decision got less attention. It was called West Virginia versus EPA, where they began uh, the project, and they're continuing it strongly, of curbing the power of regulatory agencies to protect the public on issues like the environment, worker safety, and other things like that. They crammed three 
in, they crammed decades of social policy into those three days. Um, and I think, you know, the country is moving in one direction and the court is veering sharply in another direction. That creates a crisis. It's it's public trust has collapsed in the past year, according to all public opinion polls. There's nonstop controversies and scandals. And I think that we're seeing a real reaction and a real response and a real pushback, which will help shape our politics going forward. And Michael Waldman, um, we just have about a minute, but I wanted to ask you about these controversies swirling around one Supreme Court justice after another and whether there will be rules imposed. You've got the mega donors, the billionaires, Harlan Crow and uh, Justice um, Clarence Thomas. You've got um, Paul Singer, the mega donor, both of them having major business before the Supreme Court, Singer with his relationship with Samuel Alito. Um, neither of them disclosing this. So if they say it really didn't matter, then why didn't they disclose it on their forms? What kind of regulation do you see needs to happen? What kind of rules do these Supreme Court justices have to abide by uh, that haven't been imposed? Well, Alito, remember, said, I can take this travel because he's my friend, and then also said, but I can vote on his cases because I barely know the guy. So, uh, you know, it, it is a real problem. Uh, the Supreme Court is the only court in the United States that does not have to follow a binding code of ethics. Um, nobody is so wise that they should be the judge in their own case. So they, at the very least, minimally need a binding code of ethics. Congress can pass that, but the court could do it, too. I think it's really important also that we look at term limits for Supreme Court justices, an 18-year term, say, with the presidents each getting to make an appointment every two years. Um, these are very popular across left and right. It's actually something that people get the idea that nobody should have too much public power for too long. That could be done by constitutional amendment. It could also be done, we think, at the Brennan Center by statute. Um, if you look at the state Supreme Courts, every one of them but one has either term limits or a retirement age. It helps make the court more accountable, helps drain some of the politics and, and toxicity out of the nominations. These kinds of reforms are among the things we need to be doing right now to bring the Supreme Court in line with our Constitution and our democracy. Michael Waldman, we want to thank you so much for being with us, President and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice. His new book, The Super Majority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Next up, poverty is the fourth leading cause of death in the United States. We'll speak with Bishop William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign, find out why he just led a march from the Supreme Court. Stay with us. Weekend, both from. 
Crash the car by nowhere. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Democratic Congress members Pramila Jayapal and Barbara Lee have introduced a resolution called The Third Reconstruction to End Poverty in the United States by Addressing Systemic Racism, Economic and Public Health Inequity, Militarism and Other Issues. It was drafted with input from the Poor People's Campaign, which just led a three-day Poor People's Campaign Moral Poverty Action Congress in Washington, D.C. This comes as child poverty is on the rise after the expanded child tax credit was allowed to expire, and hundreds of thousands are being kicked off Medicaid. A recent medical paper found poverty is the fourth leading cause of death now in the United States. For more, we're joined by Bishop Dr. William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, president of Repairers of the Breach, founding director of the Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School. Um, Bishop Barber, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you talk about why the Poor People's Campaign held a mock funeral, starting with the Supreme Court and going to the U.S. Capitol. You've talked about poverty being a death sentence and how what was enacted during COVID that amazingly in some cases saved lives now has uh, been taken away and more people are dying. We did it, Amy, because of how grotesque and immoral it is that poverty is the fourth leading cause of death. And that's a conservative figure because the researchers didn't even deal with children 15 years and, and, and younger. I mean, just say that. Poverty, fourth leading cause of death, higher than homicide, higher than respiratory diseases. Uh, we have the highest child poverty rate of any country like us in terms of economic power. And it's time we have to intensify what we're doing. And so at the Moral Poverty Action Congress last week, sponsored by Repairs of the Breach in the Cairo Center, hundreds of poor and lower people, over a thousand, and faith leaders and economists and public health people came together for, to, to, to form a 30-state strategy to intensify, to force our nation's leaders to confront the American death sentence of poverty, which is totally unnecessary. Uh, and this is before COVID. Poverty was the fourth leading cause of death before COVID. During COVID, 330,000 people died from the lack of healthcare, not from COVID. Poor people died at a rate three to five times higher during COVID, uh, uh, the high rates, high times of COVID, not from COVID, but from the lack of access to the things that would have prevented their death. And the question we have to ask is, why do we hear so much about crime rates and opioids and gun violence in America, but poverty kills more people than all of those things? crime rates, opioids, homicide, gun violence. Why is there no Surgeon General's warning on low-wage jobs as a form of death? So we joined with Representative Lee and Jayapal to introduce the third reconstruction resolution, ending poverty and low wealth, saying here are 20 policies. And does the Congress have the resolve, not a Democratic resolve or a Republican resolve, but a human resolve, a moral resolve to eradicate poverty and other systems of injustice, which can be done? This death is unnecessary. It is policy Yeah, it's, it's policy murder. And we met also with over 400 congresspersons, with Schumer, Jeffries tried to meet with McConnell and McCarthy. They wouldn't meet with us. In fact, they refused to allow us even to meet on the steps of the Capitol. But we kept going because 
Living wages could stop death. Health care could stop death. Child poverty tax credits could stop death. Redirecting war, the war economy could stop death. Voting rights could stop death because it allow people, uh, uh, you stop voter suppression, you undermine people getting elected who then will fight against the poor and call more death. And so we're intensifying uh, in this coming year, 2024, we're planning 30 major actions, nonviolent at state capitals. We're planning on June 15th of next year, a massive poor people's low wage workers and moral march on Raleigh, I mean on Washington, D.C., and to the polls, because we're going to be mobilizing the 87 million poor and low wealth people in this country. Poor and low wealth people now make up over 30 percent of the electorate generally and over 40 percent of the electorate in battleground states. And in most places, poor and low wealth people are not voting because they feel like the system has just abandoned them. So we're saying vote and change the system. And that's what we have to do. Otherwise, we become accessories to the crime of policy murder. And that's what's going on right now. Uh, well, Reverend Barber, uh, the, uh, you mentioned a low wage labor as a uh, health threat. And uh, the the minimum wage in this country has not been raised of the federal minimum wage in uh, 14 years. And we, we hear all this talk about inflation uh, in the country and how Americans are grappling with inflation. But yet millions and millions of Americans are still working in these, as you say, in these low wage jobs. And Congress refuses to act on the minimum wage. What will it take uh, to affect uh, this simple <laughs> approach uh, to raising the poverty? Uh, raising or eliminating the number of people who are in poverty. That's right. Well, one of the things we, we, we talk about is when we go among poor and low wealth people, whether in, in Appalachia or, or, or the Delta of Mississippi or Alabama or New York or California, is listen, you have power now. Uh, in most states, if just 20 percent of poor and low wage workers would mobilize and vote an agenda for themselves, uh, they could determine who sits in the presidency, in the governorship and in the Senate and, in, and even in the House uh, uh, races, both in the state and the federal. In North Carolina, for instance, only 19 percent that need to mobilize. In Florida, it's 4 percent. Georgia, 7 percent. Michigan is 1 percent. But the other thing is we're put we're saying to people, listen, during COVID, we low wage workers saved us. We made them go to work. We called them essential workers, but treated them like they were expendable. We said, go to work in the most dangerous jobs, but you don't have living wage. Go to work, but you won't have health care. Go to work, but you don't have paid family leave. This is social murder, policy murder. It is wrong. And it's not no longer just benign. It's not just the economics of it. It's the health of it. It's, as I said, we should have a Surgeon General's warning on low-wage jobs. We also know that we haven't raised in 14 years. So if we just raise the minimum wage to $17 an hour, which is lower than actually what a living wage ought to be, but $17 an hour, some 50 million Americans would come up out of poverty and low wages. Over 40 percent of African-Americans would come up out of poverty and low wage. Millions of white people who and actually poor white people make up the largest number of poor and low wage workers in this country. And most poor and low wage poor, poor people are the working poor. So it's backwards. And then to suggest, as some faulty economists say, that 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 keeping wages low is the way to address inflation is just wrong. The fact of the matter is inflation has been caused by war and, and by COVID and by, by this pandemic. 
And if people had more money, they could survive through. So that's one of the reasons we, I led a delegation to meet with the president, with faith leaders and impacted people. Met at the White House. We're calling for a meeting directly with the president, with, with economists, faith leaders, and impacted people. We're calling on the president to do a major bullet pulpit speech saying we cannot, as America, go around this world and challenge other nations and poverty is the fourth leading cause of death and that's a conservative figure in the wealthiest nation in the world we must call ourselves to conscience and what we're going to do is make that call have to happen we're not backing up we're intensifying because really it is about people's lives and the people that we took into the white house with them all of them had either experienced death in their families or death in their community from poverty Want folk to hear that from poverty, not from homicide, from poverty, not from respiratory disease, from poverty, not from diabetes, but from the effects of poverty. And that is just immoral and wrong. And we have to change it. Uh, Bishop Barber, as we begin to wrap up on another topic, I wanted to ask about your decision to retire from church service. You gave your final sermon at Greenleaf Christian Church in Goldsboro, North Carolina, recently. You spoke about the testimony of the cripple. Explain. Well, I talked about that because the majority of the people in the Bible whom God used had some crippling reality, mentally, physically, or otherwise, economically, and yet God used them to be transformative. There's a great scripture in the Bible that says the stones that the builders rejected have become the chief cornerstone. And so I've retired from pastoral ministry, but not from ministry. I'm going, I'm going to pastor the movement of the Poor People's Campaign Repairs of the Breach in this new center at Yale and try to raise up more and more people who see themselves as as important instruments of fundamental change. And we have so much work to do. You know, I just watched this case out of North Carolina. <clears throat> That case actually is a reaction to the work we did in Moral Monday. When we won, we, we, we beat extremists on uh, uh, um, voter suppression. We beat them on redistricting. You're talking we, about the independent state legislature theory being um, obliterated by the Supreme Court. Exactly. And the reason I raise it is because in 1868, it was two ministers who helped lead the writing of the North Carolina Constitution after slavery that put in the Constitution the very things we now use today to fight extremists at the state level. And it's important the nation knows the reason they were trying to, to, to get that passed and get the Supreme Court to agree with independent legislatures is because we've been winning using the state constitution, and we're winning because of the efforts of people of faith long ago who fought for equality in our constitution. That's what work that I want to continue. I've been pastoring over 30-some-plus years. Now it's time for me to train other ministers who are coming up and to engage as an elder and pastor the movement. And uh, I, I, I'm humbled by the reality that I have the opportunity to do that. Well, Bishop Dr. William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, and now uh, founder of the Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School. We want to thank you so much for being with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. When we come back, we go to Honduras, where residents are fighting private charter cities established by U.S. corporations. These are cities run by U.S. companies. Stay with us. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun, I say. It's all right. 
Here Comes the Sun, sung by Nina Simone. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we turn to Honduras, where communities are fighting back against privatization and foreign exploitation. The Honduran president, Shamara Castro, and the U.N. Congress repealed a law enacted by the previous right-wing administration that established what are known as Economic Development and Employment Zones, or CEDES. The law also allowed the private cities and special economic zones to have functional and administrative autonomy from the national government, which opponents say is a threat to Honduran sovereignty and the livelihood of local communities. Now, a Delaware-based corporation called Prospera has launched a case to challenge the repeal of the law under the Dominican Republic-Central America Free Trade Agreement. The company established one of the zones on the island of Roatan and is now seeking almost $11 billion, which amounts to nearly two-thirds of Honduras's entire 2022 budget. Last month, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren and 32 others in the U.S. Congress released a letter calling on the Biden administration to intervene, writing, quote, large corporations have weaponized and continue to weaponize this faulty and undemocratic dispute settlement regime to benefit their own interests at the expense of workers, consumers and small businesses globally. For more, we're going to Brussels, Belgium, to speak with Melinda St. Louis, director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. And in Honduras, we're joined by Vanessa Cardenas, the leader of the Community Council of Crawfish Rock, the area directly impacted by the Prospera Zede on the island of Roatan. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! We're going to begin in Honduras uh, with Melissa, uh, rather, with Vanessa. Can you explain what's taking place? For people to understand around the world, you've got U.S. corporations running cities? Vanessa? Um. I think she's not hearing us, so we're going to go to Melinda St. Louis. If you can explain what's happening in Honduras. Well, yes, uh, it's it's great to be here. Thank you so much. And I really look forward to hearing from Vanessa. It is absolutely outrageous that in Honduras, after the coup uh, in 2009, there was this radical project to create these zedes, as you mentioned, private cities that U.S. corporations could come in and base and control the territory. The territory was removed from municipal jurisdictions, and then they had then the power as a corporation to set their own regulatory standards, tax policy, money, monetary policy, security forces, uh, have their own separate court system, and basically run their own government. And in um, in the case of Roatan, this this company, uh, Prospera came in and established this private zone uh, where the governance structure um, does not 
allow for representative democracy uh, from the people of the community. And um, at first, the people in the community didn't even know that this was happening. It's happening in such an uh, uh, opaque a format. And once people understood how what this meant in terms of taking away Honduran sovereignty and um, taking away land from uh, from communities, there was massive uprising, indigenous people, uh, community um, organizations, even the largest business association in Honduras opposed this uh, opposed this corrupt law. And so th- through the democratic process, fortunately, they managed to overturn this corrupt law. The Xiomara Castro administration uh, ran on a platform of repealing this law, and they did so. They made good on their promise. They uh, the the National Assembly overturned uh, or repealed the law. And that really should be the end of the story. Uh, it's a victory for democracy um, in Honduras after a very dark period of 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 uh, right wing rule. And then that's not the end of the story because of the trade agreement that no one knew about and, you know, kind of it, these secretive trade rules that empower corporations to be able to challenge democratic policies outside of the court system. This isn't in a U.S. court. It's not in a Honduran court. It's in a private tribunal of private sector lawyers, three arbitrators who will decide whether to basically ransack the the treasury of the tiny country of Honduras to the tune of 11 billion dollars with a b uh, which is which again as you mentioned is uh, would bankrupt the country so the company is using this as an additional tool to try to bully the government to not implement the democratic will of the people. And so it's very complicated, but it's actually very simple. It's once again, uh, kind of this neo-colonial project of, uh, you know, of U.S. companies uh, going to the region, but in this very radical way. Yeah, I think we have uh, uh, Vanessa Cardenas uh, in Honduras now, and I wanted to go to her. Vanessa, uh, when when I was in Honduras as a reporter back uh, 30 years ago, there were already uh, very large export processing zones, basically for, for to uh, manufacture goods and send them to the United States. But this is a whole other stage here of whole cities. Could you talk about how your community, uh, Crawfish Rock, found out about this? and what the uh, what the previous government uh, had done to keep the the basic information from the people yes hello uh well we have we didn't hear it from the government of course we heard it through a community leader and she practically was telling us underneath because she was so scared but she had to uh, she wanted to the community to know I actually get it from a colleague of mine and she sent it through a WhatsApp messages. And we were, you know, we had to do so much study. We had to knock on so many doors because everyone that we asked, asked was like, no, no one knew about it. The authorities knew nothing about it. So first of all, we need to know that this, this city, and especially say that Prospera is not like the rest of the, the autonomous or independent soon. This is a state within a state, which will have its own judicial system. It, it is run by a technical secretary chosen by the camp, and the camp itself is in the shadow. No one knows who the members of the camps are. And of course, uh, the link that it has to the state of Juan Orlando is very concerning to us. 
and their lack of transparency. They have not been transparent in anything they have done. This community is a small community. It's an ethnic community. And we, of course, has uh, the rights to be free and previously consulted on any type of project that has been done in our community that we have not been. So, you know, we have totally the stress of Hospital Sede and the power that the treaties and the the, say, uh, the law gives them has us so much concern. We are so very concerned about that. You know, I was looking at the ads uh, to attract businesses, um, and it talked about these zedes. It said around the world there's something like 5,000 of these zones, but 500 of them, 10 percent, are in Latin America. Um, here, in um, if you can talk about your community, how it's impacted, and the fact that this was imposed by the previous president, Joe, as he's called, J-O-H, uh, uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez, who was extradited to the United States for drug trafficking, uh, for corruption, even though it was repealed how it's being enforced right now in your community and the particular effects on your on your community. Santa Prospera has had a very negative impact on our community. It has had a psychological impact as well as physical impact. Why I would say psychological? Because the mental stress that we are under, we have we don't know when we will have our home will be taken from us. And we have old people, we have uh, single mothers, we have widows, and you know, it's a problem to be stressing and worried all the time when we will have to leave our community. And physically, because there was not, the community was stuck in a limbo. No one wanted to do anything with it. There was no developing. After the law was uh, abolished in last year, you would, anyone that is from here can see that there have been numerous construction, many homes have been. People have started to build home to, to fix. First, before that, because of the say the problem that we have and we still have, you know, people didn't even want to fix their fences because it, it was like, you know, we don't know where we have to move. And it was a constant stress as well as the environmental destruction that is being done in our community. We have torn down a complete hill, a hill that has so many species of animals, species of, of trees, as well as our, our main source of water. We already have a well that has been dried up. So it's so many things that have impact us negative that it, it, they, they're little, they promise jobs and they're, it's very little jobs that, uh, that we can apply to or the people them have gotten that the pros and the con is more, you know, negative than positive. Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, Melinda St. Louis, who is this firm, Prospera, that the, this Delaware firm, who runs it? And also, uh, uh, given the fact that these uh, many uh, companies previously had the right to manufacture uh, in many of these countries, what's different in terms of uh, what these private cities offer to foreigners? Uh, is this another haven for uh, for? Uh, for a crypto utopia for for tech millionaires yes well i think it really remains to be seen because it's quite a shadowy 
operation. You know, Prospera, as you mentioned, it is a Delaware-based company. It was created as for the Zede, uh, to create this Zede in Honduras. And as far as we can tell, there is not a, a, a goal to do manufacturing, to to really have major jobs. It can look like on the surface um, a tourist community, like a residential uh, community. But my what it looks like is really more of a political project. I mean, there was uh, th- certainly there are a number of members of the Prospera community who are very active in the cryptocurrency movement. They have made Bitcoin legal tender. They have uh, created an opportunity to become an e-resident. Uh, so you don't have to live there. But if you pay a fee, you can be an e-resident and then you can open up a business using the uh, the the very uh, lax regulatory framework where you can uh, propose your own regulatory code uh, and um, and 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 basically operate outside of the jurisdiction of the United States or or Honduras. Uh, and so they you know, I think that is really more what the project is of and of of Prospera. So in terms of of contributing to development, that seems very unclear. And yet, and in this case that they have launched against the government of Honduras, they are claiming that $11 billion is what their expected future profits might be um, in the future. And that's why they are claiming that under these extreme rules, investor rights that are included in the, the, the trade agreement, that they should be able to be compensated unless Honduras basically lets them do whatever they want, according to uh, the law that they previously invested under that was put into place under the regime of Juan Orlando Hernandez. And explain uh, the and, role and of that they CAFTA. Signed a le- Can you explain the role of CAFTA in this? We mm-hmm. have less than a minute to go. And the letter that Senator Warren and others have signed, what you're demanding of the Biden administration. Yes. So in CAFTA, there are these extreme investor rights that corporations can sue governments outside of the court system to demand billions uh, or millions or billions in in taxpayer compensation. And this is a very radical element of our past trading uh, system, so much so that it is no longer considered to be a viable thing to include in trade agreements. The Biden administration is no longer seeking to include these extreme corporate rights in agreements, and yet it exists in CAFTA. And so this company is utilizing it. So Senator Warren and, and 30 members of Congress are calling on the Biden administration to weigh in on behalf of Honduras in this case uh, so that they do not bankrupt this country um, and also to seek to remove these extreme investor rights from CAFTA and other free trade agreements, given that now there now that there is bipartisan opposition to this very these very extreme rules that are exploited by corporations like Prospera. Melinda St. Louis, want to thank you for being with us, Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, and Vanessa Cardenas, leader of the Community Council of Crawfish Rock, the area directly impacted by the Prospera Zede on the island of Roatan uh, in Honduras. Go to democracynow.org to hear this interview in Spanish. Oh, and a happy belated birthday to John Randolph. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.